0: Abnormality is a form of anarchy from which society must be defended. It disrupts the proper flow of bodies, information, capital, and the maximization of state forces. It is a threat to development itself. Madness, perversity, disability, indolence, criminality. These are categories in the human sciences that help differentiate the abnormality that constitutes the tide that crashes against the logic of production and the politics of utility. The task of biopolitics can be described as a secular, continual pastoral gaze. The pastor is tasked with detecting abnormality and managing circuitries. For this reason, the sovereign right to life is not completely dissolved in this new regime. It is merely reworked and given a new assignment and rationality. Those who have gone astray, whose lives are in error, become a risk that warrants their confinement, correction, and often... Their liquidation the very rules of eating of negativity and singularity
1: including the ultimate form of singularity which is a cancer change to the whole state of things and do violence without object this is a typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
2: Thanks for joining us on this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce our guests today, just want to throw out we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M U H H. Consider throwing us a buck a month, or if not, you know, just leave us a nice, nice, friendly review on iTunes to help uh, promote the show. We're very happy to bring back a friend of the show, Will Conway. We're gonna talk a little bit about uh, disability politics on a blog post of Will's. Just want to note for the audience who cannot see Will, he is once again broadcasting from, from the Panopticon. So be very wary of if you feel a cold gaze, it's him. What would be the appropriate backgrounds for Taylor and I for Zoom backgrounds <laughs> recordings moving forward? Taylor's is like uh, maybe, I don't know, hell in a cell. He's getting thrown off the top of the. <laughs> that, yeah. Yeah.
3: Hell in a cell. Mick Foley getting thrown off onto the announcer's desk. I think that that That's would be appropriate for,
2: for me. I don't know. I'll let you, one of you or both of you chime in perhaps just to. I would say Dune, right? With oh, with oh, yes, with, right, yes. with Shy Halud, you know. Oh right, the... yeah. I need to put my face like inside of that. Oh, like, oh yeah, th- there you go.
3: Yeah, your face on the on the that giant. book. The
2: the book cover with the very phallic worm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. You'll have to talk to Craig because he he was playing with that background, but he was doing yeah. it with the wetsuit. I'd I'd like to see you your face on the worm. But that would be my <laughs> that'd be my guess.
2: The worm has certainly turned for you, man. <laughs> Anyways, we can dispense with the bullshitting. And step into some some meat here, brought will to do some heavy hitting on on a topic we haven't looked at, and I' very much enjoyed the reading will by the way, just so you know you know I appreciate a little linguistic flourish here and there, so kudos to you, my friend.
0: I appreciate that. I should just cut in like yeah, obviously uh, I'm very happy to be on, and this is not just me doing the the guest bit where I also like gesture towards the patreon and the uh, the review, but like I work with and on. Acid Horizon. That's what I do primarily with my with myself. Those I your body, reviews, they help a lot. If you can just write, it's cool, <laughs> and press send, it would mean a lot to all of us, frankly, because this this space exists, and you know we have, you know, they're not lines of affiliation; they're they're alliances. <laughs> but, but yeah, we're we're always connected to one another, and sort of the network of create of kind of connections we've been able to create is this network's been really helpful for what we've done over at Asset Horizon. So
2: yeah, do help (laughs) in any way you can. I just want to see one review that just says banger. Banger, yeah. (laughs) Foucault is obviously
3: central to your intellectual project, your dissertation work. And it's a stock question. The question itself may be boring in its form, but the answer always the responses always seem interesting. Can you tell us about like your first encounter with Foucault and what, and, and what sealed the deal? Maybe those are two different events, but...
0: My first encounter with Foucault was likely, you know, nominally in high school, right? Uh-huh. You, you get these sort of intellectual histories from the 60s and so on in, in high school classrooms. And I, I probably <sighs> didn't think much of it at the time, but it wouldn't be until I started doing college debate, yikes, yes. where Foucault would sort of manifest as this uh-huh. like figure who you had to understand a little bit to be able to play the game of like biopolitical argumentation or things like that. But I found, I found that those interactions in the end were not fundamental, but in fact, it was the philosophical education that I received kind of on the periphery of these things. So I was good friends with my debate coach, and he'd seen that I had shown an interest in the more theory-oriented elements of debate, and that I was sort of increasingly frustrated with the way in which debate utilized and continues to utilize theory. But just one summer, God, I must have been 20, I went on amazon.com, unfortunately. I purchased a copy of this like strange book called Madness and Civilization. And everywhere that I went, a copy of C was on me. But it yeah. really wouldn't be until I was at a water park with my partner and my, my friend, and uh, I was just sitting and reading Foucault, and there was this extensive description of a Goya painting, yeah, the idiot, that struck me. And from that point on, I was kind of captured by Foucault, because when you are a disabled student studying philosophy, right, Phenomenological ontology, existential phenomenology, and this is going to frustrate a lot of the phenomenology professors whom I adore, it does leave an itch uncritically scratched. And for me, Foucault was the first philosophical figure that allowed me to have a critical engagement with myself Mm -hmm. as, as a disabled subject. You know, I'd read Hume and Sartre. They were interests that I had when I was, you know, initial kind of incipient interests that I had when I was young and in college. Um, But it wouldn't be until I read Foucault that I started to, to recognize precisely why I was unsatisfied and what had left me fundamentally dissatisfied with depictions of the body in philosophy notions of the universal. So for me, Foucault, Foucault wasn't just like a, a shift in my educational trajectory. It fundamentally altered my life. So, you know, I make jokes about Foucault with Twitter all the time. right? I do hope that that doesn't come across as a sort of like flippant kind of casual relationship to this thought that's just like, You know, another figure in my arsenal for as a graduate student or whatever. For me, biopolitical inquiry has day to day real stakes in a way that other philosophical works and traditions that I'd been exposed to didn't have. I struggled for a long time with my aberrants, and it really wouldn't be. You know, I remember where I was when I when I first read these these passages, it really wouldn't be until, you know, I was I was on a plane finishing finishing the history of sexuality, the first volume. And I came across that passage on what would now be called thanato politics or the right to let die, that the anxiety that I felt about the way in which. Liberalist society represented and understood aberrants, that it kind of clicked for me. So it came to me kind of later in life. I'm not some 14 year old that discovered, you know, Nietzsche and philosophy at a middle school book fair or something (laughs) that then became, you know, an expert in the rhizomatic as a teenager. Like I was joking around at that age, you know, but likely. Deeply unsettled with my with my positionality, you know, and likely bitter my relationship to the apparatus of disability has been one that I don't think I could adequately describe, but it's been one that I constantly for most of my life at the time as a child had to just defer this question about myself and Foucault. In a sense, allowed me to understand what underwrote that urge to defer these questions, to instead seek paths of normalization, to sort of dissipate into the world where the processes of the where I could fold in to the processes of the everyday, where I could find myself in the warm comfort of the inconspicuous. And it's just not a, a thing that i was able to afford myself growing up so maybe this is this is a weirdly you know social psychological explanation and i probably shouldn't pathologize it like that but for me foucault allowed a different kind of orientation for a relation to myself and my you know supposed aberrance that no figure up until that point had you know of course deleuze and guattari allowed for I think a relatively remarkable moment in, in what is actually my intellectual development, you know, Deleuze's reading of Hume, I think allowed me to understand again, the anxieties that sat at the root of my discomfort when I read through you know, basic Lockean epistemology as a kid. So, yeah, I guess that would be the the best. I mean, I'm sure this story changes all the time, right? Like someone says, oh, like, what was the, how did you come to do this work? Like, I'm sure, you know, if someone asks me five years from now, it'll be a totally different series of events. You know, I was standing outside of a sociology 200 class and somebody asked me if I'd read Leotard or something like that. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, the story for now, what manifests in in my brain when the violence of that question hits me, is that? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, yeah, because I ask these questions because, you know, to some extent to, to do what you do, to do what, whatever is entailed in thinking and writing, whether it be academia, para-academia, whether it just be the arts, creativity, something has to strike us it's one thing to study the history of philosophy and and to and to take on the the image of the contemplative you know mind and be above everything but for something to actually strike home and as you said give you Kind of a, a way to think through the sort of mass web of feelings and thoughts and instincts that relates yourself to yourself. There's only some thinkers that really stand out and strike us and make us and make us think. It's one thing to just pretend like we're reading these philosophical texts to sort of gain mastery or knowledge or these abstract things. But for someone like Foucault to speak to you on a, on a level that cuts through all the bullshit and makes it less about any of those types of you know, not very interesting or or personal things, because that's the thing, like there are some thinkers who are able to, to reach through the text and grab us personally in a way that, that that's a rare event. So I guess that, uh, you know, you can't really avoid the context that, I mean, that's essential here. Yeah.
0: The three of us, we circled the bandwagon of, of French theory, and there are other institutional reasons for why we have to convince one another that these projects have stakes. But when we look at the history of philosophy and we look at texts like Discipline and Punish, Anti-Oedipus, you know, and even earlier texts, which you know would largely be the target of those two, so like Eros and Civilization, mm-hmm. right? The stakes are present in the context in which they are writing. These are men, these two figures, Deleuze and Foucault and Guattari, so three, who are grappling with the traumatic experiences of World War II. And the story that we largely get is that it's the existentialists that have to deal with that question, right? You know, Sartre and Camus deal with the trauma. But in many ways, I think Deleuze's fascination with Francis Bacon shows that in fact, you know, there is this this lingering question of of real physical and observable violence, but also the violence of the fascist line of flight. Because what sits at the root of a thousand plateaus is largely this question, the confluence of forces that make either the catatonic or the fascistic, the outright fascistic line of flight possible. And then for Foucault, what we find is an individual who spent their youth interacting with the constituted normalizing power of the psych ward or of the scientific apparatus of homosexuality, and growing up in Vichy France as a gay boy, um, there are immediate stakes to the questions that they're answering. And I think that's something that probably reached out to me and completely reoriented my politics. And, you know, there isn't a figure like Foucault in any other corner of my life. He seeped into everything that becomes an interaction for me. Any sort of aleatory moment, um, I am sure... That my extended exposure to this person has, you know, implications for the way I conceive of the interaction or the relation or whatever. So, you know, it's not it's not just that I have a new understanding of the history of unreason. You know, and I can talk to the question of, you know, the Heideggerian kernel at the beginning of madness and civilization, or the history of madness, or that Deleuze has given me a new understanding of the idea through a tripartite you know explanation of the concept. Like the implications for me, I've always tried to to make more bare, more plain. And maybe that's not philosophically interesting for some people, but um, it is for me. Yeah. And I hope that for some folks, the kind of engagement that I provide, can lend stakes if they're not immediately apparent. And look, likely they are, but if they aren't.
3: I mean, I remember when I was first getting into Foucault and an undergraduate, my undergraduate thesis was the senior thesis class that year was taught by an amazing professor who had us doing disability theory. And that's yep. when I really got serious about Foucault and these questions that I had never really ask myself, and there's two things I want to say before we can kind of move into your work is one of which was that reading disability theory, and this was, I guess this was early 2000s. So it was at the time, kind of with like digital media studies and whatever, it was kind of still a burgeoning field in the humanities, even though you can look across the history of philosophy and and literature and, and find it. But one of the things that I remember thinking about, thinking deeply through and why it struck me was the fact that, you know, as a white heterosexual adult male, I obviously will not be in the realm of other minority groups. But at any moment, any chance encounter, I can easily and potentially over the over the course of my life become a disabled body. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's just a fact that can happen to anyone. But the the other thing, just, this is just an anecdote. I remember in grad school and, you know, I had started reading Foucault, Madison Civilization, Birth of the Clinic, you know, the the classics, obviously. And there's a lot more translated now, like his lectures and such. But I remember there was a, there was a a young professor who said something really flippant. And I thought it was, I thought it was one of the most arrogant things I had heard up to that point, obviously heard worse now but he said something like you know in my day I don't know what's with these grad students because in my day when everyone came in having read all of Foucault blah 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 and I just thought it was like the most this is why I asked your relationship with Foucault because that kind of relationship is the shit I'm talking about where it's about this display of mastery it's like oh I've read Foucault that's just a part of my I don't even say my toolbox that's a part of I can cite him and get clout. It sounds like debate shit, right? Yeah, that's, well, that's the problem, right? So, like, when it comes to
0: Foucault, I'm kind of a Nietzschean slow reader. I really do think that, like, most people who attest that they have an exposure to Foucault, but have not invested in the work or feel the stakes, even if they end up disagreeing with the thesis, right? Like, let's say, you know, they remain invested in in an entirely different conception of power and you know, come out on the other end, you know, a a neo Hobbesian when it comes to sovereignty or something like that. Yeah. Knowledge and power are great. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like this is fine. Um, (laughs) I've always found for some reason, Foucault as a figure in the history of philosophy is a figure and I'm trying to understand precisely why. And I think it's because this stake exists that he has to be treated as someone who, if you've read, you understand. And What I find particularly with Foucault, because there's, you know, since the 80s, been a kind of reinvestment in, as much as possible, a really significant refutation of Foucault, whether it's on the liberal side with Habermas, where what they're lamenting is either this lack of normativity or, as Nancy Fraser will put it, a crypto normativity. I think both are extraordinarily. False and problematic ways to go about reading Foucault. And they find precisely what they're looking for, which I think is always dangerous when you read a a theorist. But unless there's been this investment in these questions of power, sovereignty, knowledge, I find that what you usually get from a conversation with someone who asserts that they've read Foucault has since moved on to, to more serious philosophical work. Tend to be the people who have the most ridiculous misreadings of any given theorist that they're engaging with, and they tend to be individuals who, having read a text is a virtue in itself. We have mutual friends who who talk about these questions of investment in text, right? There was a bit of a of a Twitter scuff up over this question of investment and understanding and desire in reading that so we know that that the stakes are are present, and that when it comes to reading a text, but yes, yeah, for me the the worst kind of philosophical teacher, you know and a person who could never become a mentor for an apprenticeship is the kind of philosophical.
3: It's the bucket ball. list. Check, check. It's, it's like, yeah, it's check the, off is your the, bucket yeah, list. Yeah,
0: precisely. It, the kind of <sighs> individual who thinks that exposure is really important. And for anyone who doesn't think they have a grasp of a text, just dwell in it. You know, yeah. live in its world for a little while. Be wrong about its concepts. Mm-hmm. Like, I do that all the time. I'm sure I have blog posts where if I read a paragraph of it or a grad school paper that I'd absolutely be nauseous coming across. But it's that process of nausea that allows me to get to where I think I've found value in this or that text. And that's what I think I do with you know I have a kind of heterodox reading of him where I kind of invest in in figures and moments in the text rather than engaging in these largely schematic yeah. Undertakings of Foucault, you know, I can do it. I do it sometimes, but I try to avoid it because I think Foucault is a largely schematic thinker, and I don't want to just replicate what he's up
3: to. And I think, and that's been done. A...
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway,
3: no, I'm just, I was just saying that's that's been done, right? Yeah. The the broad strokes, and it's interesting the way you talk about reading Foucault, that you talk about writing Foucault, and in fact, you could apply this generally, I think, to to most thinkers and writers who've tried to tackle texts. And yes, they can look back and say, well, you know, okay, I'm nauseous at that, but it is about this going astray. I mean, literally the title of your, of one of your pieces today. So I told you that I was kind of struck with this notion of error, aberrance, errancy. And there used to be this phrase that's kind of, you know, it's a little bit antiquated, but this notion of a, of a knight errant, right? Mm-hmm. Wandering from yeah, place nice. to place. So do you want to say something a little bit about this yes. figure of errancy and error? And, so the, and- so this
0: figure of error in Foucault sort of struck me because when you read his work on George Canguilhem, who wrote his seminal text in the 40s, and wouldn't be published into English until, I think, the 80s. But it was an extraordinarily influential text for figures like Foucault and even Deleuze, though Mm -hmm. Deleuze, I don't think, ever directly cites it. But what Foucault found in this text was not just the polemical concept of abnormality, right? When and what are the conditions of aberrance in pathological medicine that constitutes abnormality, right? So we have the norm which at any given time is a series of propositions, right? That the normal individual in the 19th century is for medicine, the fundamental building block of the assertion of a crisis, right? When, and this is not in in the uh, Hippocratean notion anymore, which is different and I think another area where you could do really serious scholarship on medicine in crisis. But this moment of aberrance is found at kind of its most basic level to be a possibility for the arrival of a disease or a deficiency, or as Canguilam will talk about, a monstrosity. And what Foucault finds is that in Canguilam's engagement with the history of science is life is no longer something that, that has to be engaged with at these moments of medical crisis, but is something that is always at risk in the discourse of medicine, of wandering off, of leaving the developmental track that is so important. And what Foucault does, I think, is expand this crisis of aberrancy. Because if we are to understand Foucault politically, we have to understand him, I think, as a theorist whose conception of resistance is a resistance through unacceptable aberrance, through fundamental incompatibilities that are asserted through and discovered by relations of knowledge and power. And then what we find is get categorized as error, get thrown into a realm where the truth, whether that be the police or medical categorization, confinement must bear down on this aberrance because it is precisely that which poses a fundamental risk. So the normal and the abnormal for Foucault are where both disciplinary power and the biopolitical apparatus, which is, I think most of your listeners have at least some sort of, have heard these terms before, come to intersect. That the disciplinary power (laughs) that allowed for drilling and instruction to create a sort of refinement and perpetually compelled march to take place in the young 19-year-old boy who's been conscripted by, you know, a Bonaparte Mm -hmm. army, is the norm, is what allows for this development to exist. Once we can establish what acceptable confines are for movement we can develop ways in which we can engage with the body at its anatomical level to redirect it and the biopolitical has a very similar relationship to the norm but here it's at the level population productivity more broadly now what is an appropriate amount of time for a child to remain in the home with his mother what is the appropriate amount of free time that a laborer gets to have that doesn't impact productivity. It's the second order questions. The cybernetic is fundamentally in relation to the biopolitical, right? So what I found is that this notion of errancy and error is not on- only always in conflict, right? Because what Foucault finds is that the relationship we've had to error has been one that has collapsed the distinction between errance in France, which is to one wan- in French, which is to wander, right, or to err, which is to go astray, and error in the epistemological sense.
3: Mm-hmm. These
0: two distinctions sort of begin to collapse and necessitate a kind of violent intervention and. What I do in this essay is I try to show that these wanderings become a fundamental disturbance in information systems that become a note of resistance in themselves. And kind of the final assertion is that if there is a possibility for Acts of freedom in Foucault, which would be, of course, a concern of his later in his life, because his relationship to the subject is always changing. They have to be acts of freedom through wandering, through breaking with the temporality of normal processes of production. And there are a series of examples that I try to provide that you can find in Foucault's work of the disabled oh. child, of the labor dissipator, right? Not the person who engages in labor depredation, right? So not necessarily the Luddite, but they are an example of this. What Mm -hmm. I found a little bit more philosophically interesting was the individual who, through their relationship to themselves, implicate a broader relationship between the corporeality and materiality of bodies and the second order processes of production and necessitates not just an intervention at the level of where the proletariat exists, which is on the levers of production, right? To be sort of Marxian about it, but instead to ask a different question and to say, no, in fact, it's also the relationship between the proletarian worker and himself, then through and also through this relationship to the levers of production. So You know, the the labor dissipator is a is a figure that I focus on. But also I find there are moments that Foucault sees in contemporary discourses, right? Like the tool prison riot, where what he finds is wandering and resistance can take on a kind of new orientation, where instead of pressing up directly against the levers of power, like a conventional prison riot would, right? Where let's say you you beat a prison guard or you break a window and that erupts into an attempted escape. But instead, precisely to escape their imprisonment, they turn the prison into a barricade. These processes of normalization find themselves turned inward towards themselves and wander into their own circuitries and show that not only are these processes subject to you know, the nonchalant wandering of the vagabond, Or the labor dissipator who gets drunk too drunk, you know, on a Monday afternoon, but also those who have to live under these processes of subjugation and can turn all of these various technologies because they have, frankly, a more intimate relationship to them than the person who wields the chains and the keys of the prison, who can turn them inward and make the circuitry of these biopolitical processes short circuit at a node. And I think that. This is precisely where Foucault sees a very particular kind of opposition possible because, you know, as Deleuze says in his book on Foucault, there's a kind of weird treatment of laughter that you see. You know, the prison guard laughs in his in his torturous engagements with the prisoner and the prisoner laughs, too, but they never laugh in the same way. It's not the same cadence. So. What this piece tries to do is show all of these various ways in which we can get lost or that we can momentarily escape the tightness of the grip of power and through aberrance in the day-to-day processes can find a moment of resistance. Because I think the question of subjectivity itself can't always be in relation to A kind of crude understanding of the truth, which I think a lot of contemporary philosophy has found itself doing. I think the revivalism of some Bedouin tendencies have shown that we're kind of in a period of a revival of relationship between subjectivity and truth. And what Foucault is going to try to show... I think, and I, I you know maybe I'm pulling this out of him and being unfair to him in doing this is not only are subjectivity and truth interlinked that through subjectivity we produce acts of truth right that there are these you know these moments where the subject is compelled to not only make assertions about truth but locate the truth in themselves right power and truth are never directly distinct but also that It's through error and through aberrancy, and of course, error and aberrancy and errancy are going to be in perpetual tension, that the possibility for auto-constitution at least comes through ephemerally, that it's in these moments of errance or of wandering that these practices of freedom can be shown. where we are no longer fundamentally indistinguishable from the day-to-day processes of biopolitical circuitry. Because I find that when we consider a refinement of our engagement with power, with production, with utility, when we consider that an engagement with truth, I think the possibility for any sort of destituent gesture, any sort of neutralizing gesture begins to fundamentally dissipate. So for me, I think what this work tried to do is it tried to signal to readers that for Foucault, he's always kind of gripping at another life, another form of being. And Foucault is often treated as though He can't give an account of resistance or that power is a dead end, the the famous Habermasian assertion. I think both are absolutely ridiculous, that it's power that always seeks to close off escapes, escape Mm. routes for the subject. You know, the subject in power, Foucault's late essay, makes that clear. But it is precisely... In not only looking for external escapes, but looking for ways in which we can undermine, reverse these relations, even if only momentarily, like in the prison or with the ADAPT protesters who shed their democratic predicates in order to engage in a moment of ephemeral militancy that, again, just at a certain intersection in a certain part of a city, Denver freezes just for a moment because they're imposed immobility, and this is in the essay, and we'll get to it, becomes something which can be a weapon for insurrection. So yeah, that would be my summary of the, if you have, I probably didn't do enough of a good job explaining each of these
2: examples, but we'll get into that now, I guess. I sort of wanted to just take a moment to say, I guess, to really, I, both of you may not even be aware of this, but I think you know Foucault was extremely influential in my development and probably for this podcast to exist on, honestly, because I discovered Foucault actually just via those, you know, those like introducing books yeah, or Ooh. like for beginners that have those the sort are great. of a graphic novel style book. But yeah, it was, so I was very influenced by Foucault, I think primarily in the political realm of, you know, his analysis of power and, and so forth. And a sort of uh, a sort of post-structuralist anarchism is something that kind of appealed to me and, and certainly has to this day, I think so. I just wanted to, I guess, commiserate with uh, with Will on that point, and I guess illuminate that for anyone in the audience, or or Taylor, or whomever. But I think that something that jumps out about me, or to me, having just completed our reading of um, a symbolic exchange and death, is this certain overlap or this idea of what's normal, um, normalization, right? Because in symbolic exchange and death, one of Baudrillard's big points about the dead is no longer normal to be dead, right? So there's this sort of excluded other that is really removed in a similar fashion from the circuitry of production, because the dead really no longer have any sort of value under the mode of production of commodity production, right? What can they do? They can only yield value in sort of the symbolic exchange and this sort of exclusionary way or this inclusionary way at the level of the tribe and the way that they articulate, you know, their relations to the to their ancestors, et cetera. Right. There's kind of a similar, I think, function going on, right? And it's related to production. And again, those circuits of production and inputs and outputs and and what have you. So I think that there is definitely there's an aspect of the differently-abled subject or the disability subject that is revolutionary but primarily because of their relationship of their physical body to production cannot be they cannot be captured in a certain sense unless it's through some type of apparatus right like an apparatus to normalize the body right as a an amputee may have a prosthetic a prosthetic right via prosthesis or you know whatever the case may be so there is that element and i think during covid there is this new potential, you know, something like long COVID, I think really brings this into sharp relief is in terms of at any moment, you're sort of this sort of error, if you will, can, can occur and you can become, you know, part of this. So it needs to be, it's something that needs to be, I think brought to bear because it is something that similar to the way that we exclude death from, from our culture. There's a similar, you know, there's a, undercurrent of that of these other people that are not society is this the dead are over here the differently abled are over the disabled are here etc right so it's not only about relations to production it's about i guess even just geography gets impacted right and um i don't know if i should spoil this but i really did like this element of the the bus or the police buses that we can get to Later on, I really that was that was just amazing. Oh. That just really like crystallizes, and I, I don't want to articulate that yet, but I think that really crystallizes the sort of, I guess, the conditions. Such a great example, I guess, of the tension when, when between I, all of these things. For anyone who the
0: Denver protest is kind of this this underappreciated moment, I think in disability activism, where because. Remember, if we're to be Foucaultians here, and maybe we aren't, you know, maybe there is no such thing, but let's pretend, let's try. We're going to have to understand that aberrancy does not have some incipient kernel in the body, right? There is no truth of aberrancy, then has to go into these discursive formations and then is produced. There's, you know, it's not like... For example, some disability theorists like to constitute a difference between impairment and disability, where impairment mm. is the natural, quote-unquote, natural strains of normalized right. bodies. And then, of course, disability is the social construct,
3: right? But
0: a more Foucauldian- Kind of sex,
3: sex and gender thing, right? Precisely. Almost. Yeah. That's, okay. and,
0: and, and there are some Foucaultians who engage with this problem of the social model of disability where- mm-hmm. You know, Shelley Tremaine probably being the most notable of the Foucault scholars that do this, where she just says, like, you reinvent this sort of binary where there's a truth of sex. And then, you know, sexuality is the mystical discourse Mm -hmm. that shrouds over these eternal truths. You know, impairment is the eternal truth of the body. And I think that that moment where we talk about aberrancy, you know, when when being dead becomes abnormal or you know a body that engages with the world in this or that way becomes abnormal and then all of the second order juridical consequences of the assertion of that aberrance becomes the very limit of the enforcement of of this regime right of course the police bus won't have you know wheelchair accessible wheelchair accessible Components. So they meet their very regime of the norm at its limit, and the entire police interaction falls apart. So, you know, for me, the history of disability activism within like the democratic parliamentarian disposition has always had this kernel of anarchic insurrectionary potentiality. And we find it in this wandering, in this having gone astray. Mm -hmm. So I think that what we see throughout history are these images of what we would constitute as errants or error, depending on which side of the discursive formation you sit at. This relationship to epistemology, to the body To the juridical, these things are all deeply entangled and they're intertwined. And I think that what we find is throughout the history of failed resistance, of the failed revolution, of, you know, Les Enfants Perdus, right? Of these moments where only a potential break from capitalist temporality from the regime of ableism, what we see when when that temporality is broken, when the inconspicuous comes through to the floor, is the possibility of another world. And for me, it's Foucault's utilization of these moments that show him to be explicitly not only a theorist of disability, but a theorist of the anarchism of aberrant pathology. And I think for that reason, Foucault must be reckoned with. And he must be reckoned with by disability theorists, particularly.
3: This is interesting to to think through specifically your citation of Agamben and this notion of what an apparatus is, which I'm sure you could paraphrase better than I can, but it obviously has to do with whatever framework that imposes and reinforces and standardizes a norm. I know that he he's a little bit more detailed there but I was thinking when when Coop was talking about how Apparatuses even without Apparatuses there are these these little prospecies even for people who imagine themselves to be able bodies that are constantly being imposed and how Apparatuses kind of behind the scenes provide these these prostheses as though they were normal or as though they were natural, again, kind of reinforcing this, this binary between, as you said, this natural impairment versus the socially constructed uh, disability. And, you know, while I'll leave that to the side for now, it does seem like your yoking of Kangiham and the normal and pathological with Agamben's notion of an apparatus is providing a really interesting way for you to articulate this interest and and get get a little bit more out of Foucault that perhaps I guess that's 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 what I want to I want to know like what what do you think about what Agamben is doing for you here in this essay?
0: I think what Agamben allows me to do in my work on disability is to understand that apparatuses, because I think Agamben's essay, What is an Apparatus, is probably one of the best engagements with Foucault's notion of the dispositif. I think what Agamben's work on the apparatus allows me to do is to put at stake the metaphysical content that constitutes what becomes the norm. Right, that underneath these normalizing powers is not just a long standing discourse about the body, the proper way to fire a rifle, the proper grain price, but in fact, humanity's relationship to its own content. So, like here, so the second we begin to attempt to define what the proper relation to the world must be. Once we engage in these distinctions between man or between the human body and its processes of becoming, we have, in a certain sense, attempted to capture the subject. And what Agamben does, I think, is extend explicitly what's implicit at Foucault, extend explicitly what we find in the timetables of a penitentiary or of a schoolhouse and link it All the way back, not just to Lemaitre and Man in a Machine, but in fact to say discourses on the materiality of the body are, are also part of what we need to undermine and neutralize. Because Agamben's entire relationship to philosophy and the apparatus is the moment that we come across an apparatus that forces us to make this distinction, right? Either between the constituent subject and the constituted subject or, you know, the normal and abnormal individual, what we need to try to do is to neutralize these systems that produce the figure, that in the third order produce the figure of the terrorist or the figure of the dangerous individual, the dangerous class. And I think that an engagement with these figures, because both Agamben and uh, Kangilam are actually interpreters of Foucault, Cungulam wrote a famous essay on monstrosity in 1962, and what we see is the establishment of these foils. Cungulam pulls out these foils where the monster sits in the jar as the very thing that constitutes the realm of abnormality, that allows for subjects to be thrown to the boundary of the anthropos. And what Cungulam is going to ask us to do is to say, are these things as static as they seem? Right, and this is a very basic assertion, right? That all of these, all of these apparatuses, whether they be the sovereign subject or abnormality, they they exist to attempt to capture us, right? In the in the deleuzo sense. So, for my work with disability, I think it's really important to have an implied respect to. Not the sovereign subject, but the subject insofar as they are always going through a process of subjectivation, insofar that they are always on the move, that they are always at risk of going astray. And that's why Deleuze sees the highway as this remarkable totalitarian invention, right? Because the subject gets to feel that they could go anywhere in the world. They can, mm. On the Autobahn, you can drive 136 kilometers per hour but you can drive there, (laughs) you know, you you can drive specifically on the highway, feel completely free and be entirely (sighs) controlled. So these ideas of wandering that in the end simply become, you know, we call them what you want, affirmations of processes of production, right? When we think of Elon Musk (laughs) as the individual who has wandered through his brilliance and his, his engagement with, you know, let's just be honest, like NASA, right? And the way in which he's been able to produce these new understandings of the relationship between the state and capital. And the second we see him as an individual who has gone astray, we are completely lost, right? And I think that, I think that my engagement with Agamben helps me Because he shows that historically, figures who exist outside of these processes of subjectivation are always at risk of losing all of their content in sovereign power, right? Are always at risk or or, are always at risk of letting die, but are always already reduced to bare life. So I think that, and I know that speaking positively of, of this man, right now to get you in trouble, but like, I'm going to do it because this work is important. And for that reason, I think that the discourses on Foucault that have happened that do not contend with these very real and very violent implications for what abnormality becomes fail to understand the very consequence of Foucault's work and fail to recognize precisely why individuals in 1977 in Italy found it valuable why the students grappling with what occurred in 1968 found it valuable and why today some random disabled philosophy student can find it valuable you know not not to compare these figures but like i it's random but yeah to me that's the reason why i think the apparatus is an is an important is an important mechanism because it is what forces a body to have a relationship between all of these universal categories and the process that directs them towards the refinement of them as a subject. You know, So I think that once we see that disability routinely both is subject to the violence of these apparatuses and routinely neutralizes them, do we see that disability enters into the discussion, disability as an apparatus and disabled subjects as those who can routinely problematize the grip that they have on processes of subjectivation, right? By just wandering astray, by sitting under a tire, you know, show the weakness of the regime of mobility, right? That at any given moment, this regime of mobility that is upheld by um, you know, that is upheld by capitalist temporality can be shattered by a destituent gesture as simple and frankly as violent as standing in front of a bus or sitting in front of a bus or rolling a wheelchair in front of a bus or sleeping under a a wheel, under a wheel, right? And for me, I think that this neutralization of the apparatus exists both at the level of the aleatory material engagement and at the level of the metaphysical contemporaneously. And for me, I think Agamben helps me get to that, not only because he has a great philological understanding of Foucault, one of the only people who has tried to do a philology of this man, you know, but for this reason where the stakes are viewed across history, you know, from the period of the oikos and the the Trinitarian doctrine all the way through to the apparatus of terror legislation, right? So
3: yeah i'm thinking about your discussion of agamben and the apparatus and normalization and how it relates to another piece that you have recently written where you kind of unpack the stakes of the image of thought with deleuze and rightly kind of push back against the notion that kind of deleuze is, is a political until he meets Guattari. and what i see in in the notion of an apparatus is precisely the a kind of actualization of a dominant image of thought right, right? a dominant a dominant image of normality a dominant image of for example using the normal body as the identity against which any difference can be measured and they even Describe racism in a thousand plateaus in a very kind of similar way, right? That it that sort of the majoritarian sort of white European male radiates waves of sameness out, you know, and and in these diverging circles, our differences are distributed. This gets us back to this notion of an image of thought wherein identity is primary and difference itself doesn't have a concept except by way of identity. And I think that some of what's going on with your reading of Foucault and, and Agamben through the apparatus is, is again this kind of tension where the normal becomes the kernel of identity against which any difference is, is related. And it's that fundamentally that I think constitutes the dominant image of, of the normal thought, the image of, of normal thought, of normalcy.
0: In that essay, which I wrote before the going astray. And I think largely informed why I had to had to then I did the thing to to Deleuze and then I had to do the thing to Foucault. Yeah. 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 You know, but this time I got to have more fun with you know these individual figures in in the history of of frankly of resistance. But I'm a little unfair to Foucault there, but I I like that I am and I'm not criticizing him. I play with this notion of the image of society in the punitive society lectures where Foucault asserts that there Becomes, there comes a moment where the image of society functions as that which produces, and we can take this from the faciality plateau, you know, an emitted signal of the same, mm-hmm. right? Through which all, all modes of being and forms of life that don't participate in this social setting in the same way or any mode of being that strays from that is cast away into error. And of course, the use of the word image there is being a little, so I did, you know, I did check the French, you know, it's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I'm being a little unfair to Foucault to, to sort of line up the image of thought and the image of society. But I, I do think that largely Deleuze in the third chapter of Difference and Repetition is providing to us the possibility of an epistemological critique that is grounded in an understanding that politics often precedes ontology that politics often precedes epistemology and the figure of the schizophrenic in difference and repetition and its relationship to error makes this absolutely clear and for me you know the schizophrenic image of thought in its relationship to error shows precisely where kongylen comes back into the fold for deleuze from his student years mm. and we see that the dogmatic image of thought becomes an apparatus for the- the perpetual maintenance of a norm that the image of thought is a fundamental piece of technology for normalizing power and i still think it is when we think about the violence of the image of thought when we think about what it does to disabled students what it does to schizophrenic patients what it does to incarcerated individuals who are treated as though they have not just have they transgressed a particular code But what we see from the 19th century onward is that it's much deeper than that. We have to reach out into the soul of these individuals and not just make them pure, not just engage in a monastic recognition of how one may better serve themselves and better serve their community, but in fact, correct the very very way in which they perceive of the social itself. And this has a lot of really dangerous effects that are not downstream, but immediate, right? So one example, and I know that I pick on one bioethicist in particular, but he's the most famous and he's the most institutionally connected. And he's in fact, I think probably one of the most important philosophical figures of the contemporary order of things is Peter Singer, right? Whose practical ethics is required reading for most bioethics students, for most most students in the history of philosophy, I would say. Yeah. Practical Ethics is a book that's had several editions printed since, I think, 1991. And his understanding of an individual who is to be euthanized is an individual who cannot, his assertion of capability of the can and cannot is also kind of interesting, but that's a second question. That's a secondary question. Is an individual who he believes cannot recognize themselves. You know, as a social being in relation to some sort of social totality. So, you know, for Peter Singer, what we see is that you know, an individual who 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 cannot
2: be a good uh, subject, be a good right? subject precisely
0: yeah. is the individual who will suffer in yeah. life. And mm-hmm. the thing that I find kind of remarkable about the passive acceptance of this is that that even though we may condemn Peter Singer's language, we often don't condemn the underlying image of thought that leads to this literary performance, right? Where he produces what he believes is an irrefutable conception of the human. I mean, that's what he's doing, right? Like, This isn't just a question of the notion of um, and then the open, right? Where (laughs) there is this figure of the human being and then there is everyone else. But what he really is trying to do is bring this method to the point of Incontrovertibility. controvertibility. And for Deleuze, that's precisely the problem that exists in you know, the post-Cartesian methodology of the relationship to the subject. That's the problem that he has with some of the neo-Kantians of his era, is that they can multiply and explode these categories. But at root, all they're doing is multiplying and exploding the problems. So I think Deleuze has to be understood In this chapter, as making a political claim about subjects and about the violence of metaphysics and about the violence of epistemology, because all the language Deleuze chooses here is very intentional and very violent, right? There's this figure of refusal. There's the transcendental idiot. There's being cast into error, being forced into... The murky darkness th- that you know reason no longer has access to, so therefore must cast it away into error, right? And then we can we hear echoes of a, a text Deleuze really deeply cared for, which is the history of madness. You know, mm-hmm. we hear echoes of that in that relationship between reason and unreason. So I believe that the image of thought is is a mechanism of domination, and that it shows the immediate collapse of of thought and practice. That in fact, thought is always bound up in practice, always has been bound up in practice. And only recently, I guess, can we now make that an assertion without feeling, you know, like we have to either kowtow to like a Marxist interpretation of the arbitrary distinction between matter and materiality, right? Or, you know, like Judith Butler's Bodies That Matter, right? She shows that these relationships between matter and materiality have always existed. But for the question of Uh, these very highfalutin metaphysical notions that we find in Deleuze, they're not, you know, Deleuze people like to attribute to Deleuze a kind of a kind of elitism, a metaphysical elitism. Badu likes to do this, Zizek likes to do this. But for me, like Deleuze's difference in repetition is extraordinarily anarchic. I mean, what essentially he's trying to do is show that the Nietzschean project of affirmation, the rejection that is necessary that must precede any sort of affirmative, any sort of affirmation of difference has to be total. And it cannot spiral deeply enough. It constantly has to be a force that continues to neutralize and break down apparatuses. That I think is the, is the fundamental critique of the image of thought. And I also think that that is what we find when Deleuze starts to dislike these questions of where are you going? You know, what are you doing? Who are you? You know, he sees only in in those questions a kind of reestablishment of of uh, fealty, and I think what we find in difference and repetition in these earlier texts, even though they're very difficult, is the kernel of Deleuze's
2: radical politics. And I don't even think it's a kernel; I think it's just open. I want to bring up, if I may, I think there's a I don't know. I keep thinking this brings me back to sort of I think trans individuals and their relationship to these concepts as well. I mean, there's, a, there's almost like a one-to-one and I just wonder it could be, you know, obviously perhaps confirmation bias, social media bubbles, et cetera, But I think the preponderance of trans individuals that you see that at least, you know, acknowledge a sort of anarchic ideology or ideological mm. bent for lack of a better term or phrase. I don't know if I'm happy with that phrase, but it's almost like there's a, there's a certain credence that I give to that. If that is indeed a a way that this errance or this like difference acts as a as a threat, I suppose. Like, yeah, you can I see mean, the reaction against those individuals—it's a very libidinally invested, right? It's like a very fundamental building block. I'm like a bull in a china shop with some of these um these terms and, and concepts. So, <laughs> but I feel like maybe the the dogmaticmatic image of thought perhaps is is related to that.
3: But I also wanted to
2: just briefly men- mention—you know—I have to plug our our good friend. Max Stirner, and Adam, I'm sure could probably articulate this better, but I feel like there is some of what Stirner is doing in in a work like the, um, The Unique in Its Property is getting at this sort of same thing that Foucault is, though not as sophisticated. The book was published in 1845 or something, obviously. So there's like, you know, at the cusp of modernity. But I think he definitely do, and his concept, you know, his critique of Feuerbach in particular, and that sort of humanism, I think, Resonates with Foucault's project, although you know Foucault develops a far more, I think, rigorous system. Obviously, he had a much longer career. Mm-hmm. Able, uh, yeah, no, he didn't, to... didn't.
0: He didn't end up in in debtor's
2: prison, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, actually, so Sterner died of a bug bite. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, for, did he? Did he? Most
0: life. unlucky milkman ever.
3: <laughs> yeah. Did, did Did he open a, an Egyptian tomb? Right, and you know, uh isn't I don't know if that that's a Small tales. Yeah. Yeah, right. But yeah, I, I I do think I guess that that would be the question, Will. Do you feel there is this? I guess that's two questions, right? The the thread of anarchism for trans individuals, trans bodies. Or really and, it's and, like that exclusion. Oh, go ahead.
2: Go ahead, Coop. Oh, I was just gonna say it's it's like the the anything, you know, whatever category, and that category can change over time, right? In terms of who's excluded, it's always about that excluded, it's those on the periphery, right? Of, of the normal that are the threat, that are the by just, I guess, their position within society, like both, you know, physically and in terms of, I don't know, even what it <laughs> metaphysically, there's something to that element of, or that type of subjectivity in itself. And the fact that there seems to be a preponderance of those ideologies represented amongst those individuals feels like, I don't know, it feels, it's one of the few things. Lately, that has made me feel good about anarchism, I guess.
0: I can't speak to the, the trans experience, but I can say that abnormality and Foucault's treatment of the sex and sexuality distinction can help us understand precisely like what it is that makes the figure of the turf as obsessive and violent as they are, right? They're horrified of this sex gender determination, but they don't even know what, you know, the abnormals have coming for them, right? It's not, <laughs> it's not that there is some true sex that sits over just this purely confused, you know, discourse about gender. But in fact, the real target for a Foucauldian analysis would be to completely undermine this true category of sex. So, you know, when they freak out about the notion of gender, they don't even know. <laughs> like <laughs> like they think that's anarchy. We'll show you anarchy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, that's the line of connection between anarchy and abnormality that I think Foucault tries to show is that, you know, in political abnormality or in political anarchy, we always throughout history see these assertions Of biomedical or you know purely psychological abnormality, right? So Lombroso, famous Italian criminologist who was, you know, largely laudatory of basically what would become a revival of craniology, he asserted that you know you could kind of use anatomical and psychological discourses to sort of try to separate the legitimate revolutionaries from just like the anarchists and like the vile perverted elements of the, uh, of the rot of revolution. And Foucault notes that Lombroso describes Marx as a wonderfully harmonious
3: physiognomy. <laughs> you know, and he, he like,
0: who uh,
3: I laughed at that when I read yeah. that your quote. Yeah. I, I just chuckled. Uh,
2: <laughs> Marx is a snack basically.
3: Yeah. How, yeah. how can you tell with that huge beard, right? <laughs> what his physiognomy is? He's covering it all up. He's got a,
0: <laughs> he's got a wonderful physiognomy.
3: But really? then
0: when, he sh- when Lombroso shifts to an analysis of 41 anarchists, I think it's something like, um, yeah, 31% of them have physical defects, you know, in the photo, uh, you know, and of the 100 anarchists that were arrested in Turin, Thirty-four lacked the wonderfully harmonious figure, oh. Karl Marx. So the relationship between anarchy and abnormal pathology has existed, and for Foucault, I think he sees in a lot of discourses about disability in the early, in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, he sees the reverse image. Though so he doesn't make this connection explicitly clear because it's in two different lecture series you know Edouard Seguin the French physician who's like widely read in America for you know uh, what would be called special education mm. wrote a book that would be largely influential to to American to American practitioners who deal with disabled children mostly frankly incarcerated disabled children who would be sent to institutions to be normalized you know he doesn't just engage with this sort of physiological treatment of normalizing the body, but he takes it a step further for the pedagogical operatives who are working with these children. He asserts that these children exist, they're ripped from the world. They exist in another realm. Their impulses, passions are completely misaligned, right? And for those of us who have read Hobbes, we know what happens to the individuals who passion, whose passions are not Properly aligned, right? They become sort of the enemy (laughs) for the war within. And this misalignment sort of removes him not only from this intellectual normality, but from the moral world itself. An immoral disposition exists at the core of the being of the disabled child. And what the teacher has to do is temper what Seguin calls the sort of anarchic anarchic impulses to stubbornly say no, the anarchic form of the will. And the connection that I wanted to draw here is that sort of in abnormality, what we find is the political assertion of anarchy, right? The child who stubbornly refuses authority because of a misalignment of the will that tears them from this moral world. These are not, you know, Assertions without political content. And then on the other end, what we see throughout history is that in criminology, what we find is an attempt to assert through medico juridical discourses a politics of anarchy that is connected to physical abnormality. So I think that when we talk about why TERFs possess this political anger. It is fundamentally because part of what does it is this need for a social defense, that the entirety of the social fabric to the turf is at risk in transness. It is not just these these arbitrary categories of femininity that must be defended, but the assertion is always one further, that society itself must be defended from transness. That is the fear of the term. So what we find is in the figure of the anarchist, in the figure of the disabled person standing in front of the bus, in the figure of the trans woman, we find also the anarchist. The historical presence of the anarchist, not necessarily the black bloc or the syndicalist, but anarchist insofar as they are in relation to a kind of neutralization of processes of subjectivation. That what we find is the risk of anarchy. And that's what we always are reminded of by professors who are scared of moral relativism with Foucault, right? Mm-hmm. Because at the end of it is this weird, strange hum. Of the anarchic, and they can't tolerate it because they're good platonists and they remember that on the other side of anarchy, there is just this weird possibility for a tyrannical force. But we know that that's not the case. You know, we know that that description
2: is not, is not precisely correct. I love the uh, turn of phrase with the uh, society must be defended. That's just know that I noticed that. All I, <laughs> I just want to make that abundantly clear. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I love the
0: society must be defended memes. They're some of my favorite ones where it's like, uh, it's Foucault with a gun. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Society must be defended. This also gets
3: us back to just a little bit the image of thought and Deleuze's apolitical elitism and all of that. It's this notion of crowned anarchy. And right. and Deleuze working that out. And if you if you want to read him in a oh, he's just a philosopher in the his doing history of philosophy, then you'll say, Oh, well, crown anarchy is just an inversion of Kant with no no other consequences than this internal squabble. But that's precisely how you how you would pigeonhole him in just doing pure metaphysics, as though metaphysics didn't have any relation to anything else as though it were its own realm and it's and it's really just contemplative bullshit but i do think that crown anarchy when i think hard about what the luz was doing in the monographs leading up to difference of repetition right before meeting Watery, i mean he i do think that notions like crown anarchy can't necessarily just be
0: it's not just interesting we, Kantian commentary no yeah
3: yeah And
0: that's the, that's the risk that that Foucault has run into in America as
3: well. Mm, mm -hmm. And like,
0: oh, what Foucault is, is like a particular kind of archivist who's interested in the relationship between the normal and the pathological, right? So he's just like helpful in a discourse of understanding how discursive structures create meanings and how those meanings are arbitrary and alter over time. It's like, yeah, those are, those are like deeply political assertions though, right? You understand that, right? Like, because- This is my frustration, I think, with academia in general when it comes to the way they treat Deleuze and Foucault. Like, I'm not a good voice on Foucault or Deleuze. I recognize that, right? But if you strip Foucault and Deleuze of their political content, I think you've done a larger disservice than any misinterpretation of the rhizome on Twitter could. Yeah, yeah. For me, there's nothing more frustrating than an attempt to capture Deleuze's metaphysics as just part of an internal description of an alternative to, you know, frankly, the relationship between the categories and, you know, his work on Humean epistemology, right? It's not just a Hume that can respond to Kant before Kant gets there, it's a Hume that shows that epistemology is always in relation to the political to the socius, and in that way if we do that we can find a hume that problematizes Kant before Kant can can catch can catch himself you know waking from whatever that comment I hear you know undergrads I mean the sleeping dogmatism or something right
3: like, the, the slumber of reason or whatever it was yeah. yeah and that's again where Agamben
0: comes in right because I was like points at metaphysics and goes apparatus stubbornly. Like you can't just call everything an apparatus. It's like a common, like apparatus, <laughs> mm. <laughs> you know, because it attempts to capture the subject and to prevent any possible, whatever singularity from shedding its predicates and being able to take a line of flight and instead pigeonholes it in a plane of consistency. And like, to me, to do that to Deleuze is to, I think, make him philosophically uninteresting. At the bottom of all things, like he's philosophically uninteresting if the political content is sapped. because even if we just look at his difference between teaching and apprenticeship, right, the, the famous example of the swimmer, indifference and in repetition, right, where the, the swimmer has to match up with points rather than just replicating it. To right. me, there are deep pedagogical implications that link back into the way in which we understand development politically, and to depoliticize Deleuze is to fundamentally defang him, to make him uninteresting. You know, and for that reason, I think it, it's largely telling that like in his own, you know, in the way that Canguilhem is a reader of Foucault, Althusser is a reader of Deleuze, right? His aleatory materialism is largely informed by, you know, those two or three chapters in Logic of Sense on, you know, the simulacra and the cliniment, which I think have deeply and have always had deeply political implications, Right. You know, I'm I'm working through the history of materialism in grad school right now in mm-hmm. in text as political as the prince. What we see is a representation of, you know, chance and of a temporality that's predicated by the swerve, right, mm-hmm. by Fortuna, as we said earlier. So. Yeah, these things are always bound up together. And what I find so interesting is the fact that metaphysics and epistemology and the political are bound together, it becomes a force which that can posit bodies outside the bounds of anthropological existence. And for me, the founding act, like the founding act of a metaphysics, is always one that's going to have a remarkable amount of violence in it, right? where the subject is positioned is going to be a kind of violent assertion, right? So I think that if we take that into account, we can understand that there's immediately always a consequence to any sort of philosophical text, to the dismay of many American political philosophers, frankly. But
2: yeah. Will, would you characterize this sort of anarchism as, a, as an ontological sort of anarchism? Oh, like, yeah. Like no. through the work of like a Saul Newman, I was just kind of thinking. Yeah. I'm sure I mean, you're like, familiar with his work. Yeah, no,
0: I know Saul Newman. So like some of Saul Newman's work, I think is, is really helpful. You know, I've not worked out post anarchism. You know, I've not read a lot in the contemporary sphere of like anarchist political philosophy, you know, other than zines and stuff. Cause I'm on Twitter and I engage with <laughs> folks who write this stuff. So like things like turn, turn golf courses into, to sex clubs, like those things I read, they're fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I've not read like, say, you know, Dwayne Roussel's after post anarchism or something. Right. But I would say that this is absolutely something that that gestures towards kind an resonances. Logic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That what we find is first philosophy has second order consequences. Right. That you know, if we are to understand the neutralization of apparatuses and the arché of philosophy as an apparatus, well, then we're left with one option, which is an arché. Right. <laughs> So anarchism, which, of course, like some people love to read these things democratically. Generally, I prefer anarchy. So, yeah, I I would say that you're absolutely correct. And that's a that's a great point to make. There's a lot of work on ontological anarchism happening right now. Catherine Malibu is essentially trying to provide a reading of Foucault that is fundamentally Hmm. anarchist. I think that's what Giorgio Gambin is doing, has done you know, irrespective of whatever he's blogging yeah. stuff. Uh,
2: (laughs) Well, like I said, I mean, Foucault was one of the main influences on my attraction to anarchism.
0: Yeah, see, that's the same thing for me. My political disposition is one that I can't attribute to any other figure besides Michel Foucault. You know, Deleuze becomes a really important metaphysical character that allows me to sort of play with, the consequences of apparatuses of capture. But for me, the the historical and political consequences come through most clearly in Foucault. And I think that's part of the reason why Deleuze found Foucault so helpful too. Oh yeah, yeah. I think because Deleuze, not until those two essays at the beginning of the Foucault book, does Deleuze ever engage with, and a little bit in difference in repetition, does Deleuze engage with Foucault at the level of his schematic? You know, it's always, you know, in anti Oedipus. Foucault's work on the family
3: and in, in psychiatry. Yeah.
0: So I think, you know, Deleuze found value in Foucault's ability to, I'm going to say it queer, the category of philosophy <laughs> to allow for these other discourses to inform it. In a certain sense, Foucault's philosophical training made his engagement with history a lot richer rather than just, Oh, he's an, you know, an amateur yeah. historian. It's like, no, right. it's not just a history of ideas. Like it, it's, Again, it's more violent than that. Foucault doesn't just see, you know, training manuscripts in the disciplinary society. He sees the monad, you know, he sees man a machine. Mm. He sees the history of late materialism. And in this sense, like Foucault, like Nietzsche and like Deleuze, collapses the distinction between, between thought and practice. You know, and of course, like thought and practice was always already collapsed, you know, even in, in Greek philosophical terms. So like ataraxia, right? What is that other than a practice that also has, you know, but anyway.
3: We are close to, to two hours, fellows, and I do feel like we have covered a lot. I, obviously, we'll, we'll link your essay for the readers so that they can they can read through. Was there anything else that we haven't said that you feel is is pressing? What's
0: pressing, I think, is uh, to continue supporting the Machinic and Unconscious Happy Hour and <laughs> pledging loyalty to to the Institute of Revolutionary Semiotics. Uh, you know, but uh, you're you're yeah, no, I'm right. just I'm just happy to be here. I'm sure I was a bit repetitive. No, but, no, no, not at all. But um, at all. I loved this conversation, and I, I always like hearing about how people are struck by these silly little pieces. So yeah, I'm I'm glad that. You know, if you didn't find value in it, at least it spurred your thought a little bit or revived some old feelings that you had about the lows or whatever. You know, you don't have to like it. Nobody has to like it. I don't like it, but <laughs> you know, it's nice. uh, it's uh, it's always fun to come on.
3: No, I think I think this was this was great, and it obviously vibes with with Coop. And I've I've been thinking about how much work of Foucault that Cooper and I would love to discuss and dissect, and I thought that this was a nice way to just dive in the deep end and get to some of these things that we got to explore today. So I, I thought that this is like kind of food for thought for me, uh, and and I won't speak for Coop, but hopefully for him as well going forward so that we can think about these things and from a different lens and a different perspective. And I think it I think it did nothing but enrich my appreciation for the reading of Foucault I've done. and just seeing seeing you quote especially from some of the the later lectures that I have never looked at, for example, the figure of the cynic, that's someone who you know that's that's a figure that we didn't talk about, but that fits in very well with this conversation on all fronts. Just things like that, seeing that it was it was a breath of fresh air.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that.
2: I can compliment you on something as simple as just your, uh, your oratory capacity. I just, I don't know. You just, you have a, a certain way about your, your diction that is, I don't know. It just, I hope it's not insufferable. No, I, I, I think, I, I mean, not to me. I don't think, I don't think so. Um, I think my family
3: finds me a little <laughs> insufferable. Is it,
2: is it, is it, is it your debate prep? Is that, is that Maybe, where you get right your, yeah. you
3: Get some of the, you get some of the oratory from you? Yeah, you beat, for sure. You beat, your, you beat your opponent
2: over the head with, with, with your, <laughs> with your eloquence. Yeah, I think Part dramatic of pauses of course that's where, <laughs> that's where it's really at it's like there's yeah. gaps in between the words and how they right. it's like playing an instrument right
3: are you suggesting he could be a politician right? <laughs> he's, got, he's got the Obama dramatic pauses no sorry we'll <laughs>
2: talk about crowned anarchy uh, <laughs> yes
1: sorry.
0: that was terrible I'm so sorry um <laughs> but yeah no like I think a lot of it comes from debate but also there's a carefulness that we have to Utilize when we work with these texts because I think we have to treat them with a sort of severity and honesty and frankly a vulnerability and I think that that's what I try to do in these pieces. Like I'm sure there are things that rub people the wrong way. We didn't talk about the figure of the hysteric, but I'm sure there are some folks who would find my utilization of of hysteria as a you know an anarchic political force possibly frustrating. But what I always try to do is I do always try. To not necessarily romanticize these figures, but to show the instability, but also the remarkable political power that these constructions and institutions possess. So, if I can close my side of this commentary with anything, it's just always maintain a critical disposition towards the universal in philosophy. And that seems to be such a basic assertion, but it's one that's routinely forgotten by even the most. Learned and dogmatic philosophical minds. <laughs> for me, it would just be the critical disposition is, is something that I find in Foucault that allows me to constantly revive it in myself.
3: Love it. This was excellent. Thanks again for coming on. Will short notice, but that's I, okay.
0: I you know I don't know if I did as well as as I would have liked, but you know it's
3: okay. I'll like I thought it. I thought no, I you're liked- great. Fruit. I like the I like the extra context to the impetus behind these these writings and I can kind of feel your uh the energy comes through. And that's that's something that can't be taught, right? And uh for that I really uh really appreciate your passion as well as your thinking.
2: Yeah. Perhaps and, I should amend my compliment to be that that the passion is what perhaps
3: <laughs> really <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, the oratory would be empty without the passion. The, yeah. the eloquence would be would be just word salad. So we, I really think that that's important for for us. And and thanks for thanks for sharing. I, I we will obviously interact again in this type of forum. So yeah, it's, for sure. it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have you. Uh, well,
0: we're gonna have to do a, a machinic unconscious happy uh, a machinic. Acidic Unconscious Happy Horizon
3: crossover again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But
0: we should do it. We should we should really sit down and do another play dialogue. I think those are all <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So coming attractions, I guess.
2: For future listeners. Well, that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Once again, thanks to Will for joining us. The very Cheers. Moves of,
1: theory, of negativity and sacredity including the ultimate form of security, which is how can to the whole state of things in view of violence without of care. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a the burden of the real vanishing Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I did mean? is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in blockwork uh, orange.